Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Tina Chang is the author of three collections of poetry, Hybrida, Of Gods and Strangers, and Half-Lit Houses, as well as co-editor with Ravi Shankar and Natalie Handel of the 2008 anthology Language for a New Century, Contemporary Poetry from the Middle East, Asia, and Beyond. Tina has been the Poet Laureate of Brooklyn since 2010 and is the first woman to be chosen for that position. She teaches poetry at Sarah Lawrence College. I recorded this conversation with Tina Chang in my apartment on September 13, 2019. We talked about Hybrida, her fabulous new book out this year from W.W. W. Norton, which I read over the summer. In Hybrida, Tina writes in hybrid forms about hybridity and about raising a mixed-race black child, her son is Haitian and Chinese-American, in a post-Trayvon Martin world. Tina and I talk about searching for new and old forms, flexible forms like the ancient Japanese form of the Zuhitsu. We talk about what constitutes a language of mothers, the struggle to write about real and imagined fears, and helping our children learn to live in the world without us. Tina talks about her literary influences, being a student, and about teaching, especially teaching her course, Hybrid Beast. From the moment I opened the door to my apartment, even before she stepped inside, Tina and I started talking. About our children's night terrors, about motherhood, about Tina's week as a guest host on the podcast The Slowdown, Tina's exuberance was unflagging and the conversation so engaging and intensive that had we not forced ourselves to stop talking after two and a half hours, Tina might have been late to pick her kids up from school. While Tina gathered her things together, I quickly made her a sandwich to eat on the subway. I didn't have much in the fridge, but I threw together a hummus, cheese, and avocado sandwich. Wrapping it up filled me with nostalgia for packing school lunches for my kids something I haven't done for a long time. We hugged, and while waiting for the elevator, I said a silent prayer to the subway gods that Tina would arrive on time at school, and then she was gone. It was such an intimate few hours, I was sad to see her go. So, fast forward to last week. I'd gone to Chicago to record an event that will be part of a future Commonplace episode, I also went to read for my new book, Sound Machine, at the Seminary Co-op. You can hear the audio of my reading with the incredible Tiana Clark on the Seminary Co-op's podcast. And I went to attend the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'd never been to Third Coast before and was excited to see what it was all about, to meet other podcasters and audio makers, and to meet for the first time in person our new Commonplace producer, Katie Fernelius. But I was also nervous. I'm not great at conferences, meeting tons of new people, and I felt a lot of podcaster imposter syndrome, despite the fact that Commonplace is now more than three years old and 77 episodes strong. Third Coast was enlightening, and I'll talk about that more in future episodes. I stayed in town for an extra day because I was invited to speak about podcasts as public address with Professor Neil Verma at Northwestern. 
After our lovely conversation, I rushed off to the airport, hoping to catch an earlier flight home. And I found myself wandering around the airport, listening to my own doubts and worries about the podcast conversation I just had, the Third Coast Conference, my reading, my book, and all of this just got louder and louder. Why did I say that dumb thing in response to that question after the reading? Did I remember to properly thank the bookstore? Why do I keep telling that embarrassing story in public? Was I undermining my husband when he texted me that Judah fell during a soccer game and now says he can't pick anything up, but my husband decided he was fine? So I'm walking around the airport and cringing at myself and trying to distract myself from these self-reproaches, and so I decide to listen to the audio of the conversation you're about to hear and make notes for Katie. I order a salad to take on the plane, and while I'm waiting for it to be made, I start listening. A few minutes into the audio, I suddenly realize that my dress has gotten hiked up under my backpack. I yank it back down, turning in a circle to see if anyone around me is staring at me, and I realize that it's probably been like this for at least 45 minutes. I could have been comforted by the fact that I was wearing tights and a long sweater, and anyway, who cares? I mean, really, who cares? But instead, at that moment... I heard my internal mean voice say loud and clear, you are a ridiculous person. You've been wandering around like a fool, and this is a metaphor for all the ways you are basically a person wandering around in the world on your podcast and in person, absurdly exposed and unaware of how others see you. And I started to cry. And then all of a sudden, Tina is talking about seeing me and Ariseli Skirmai and Sam Sachs presenting on a panel about hybridity at Sarah Lawrence College and how this panel and what I said sparked this moment of recognition for Tina, where she asked herself, why am I suppressing this language, the language of birth and motherhood, and that this moment was a turning point for her? And so it was that I'm standing in O'Hare Airport, crying, wearing a too heavy backpack, waiting for my salad, and I receive this gift of hearing Tina talk about my contribution to her work and to poetry, this beautiful reminder that I don't know who's listening or reading or how my words are affecting others. Speaking of gifts... I'd like to thank all our patrons for continuing to support Commonplace. For this episode, all Commonplace patrons will get access to a PDF of Tina Chang's Zuhitsu assignment from her Hybrid Beast class. They will also get an 11-minute audio file of Tina reading the title piece from her book Hybrida. She reads the beginning of this piece during our conversation, but reads the entire piece as a patron extra. And finally, patrons will get a 12-minute bonus audio. This is audio we cut out of the main episode. In it, Tina and I discuss our literary influences, our shared interest in YA literature, and the program Tina started called Meet the Author. In addition to these patron extras, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive Hybrida by Tina Chang, courtesy of W.W. Norton, The Source of Self-Regard by Toni Morrison, courtesy of Knopf, 
and Ravishing Disunities, Real Huzzles in English, edited by Aga Shahid Ali, courtesy of Wesleyan University Press. To find out how to become a patron, please visit our website, commonpodcast.com, where you can also find links to the people and texts we mention in this episode and where you can subscribe to our per-episode newsletter. Commonplace receives no corporate funding, no ads, no grants, and no institutional support. We are, as I learned to say at Third Coast, an independent podcast made possible by patron support. So thank you, patrons. Thank you for supporting us. And thank you to all the listeners who write us encouraging messages. And to those of you who recommend Commonplace to friends and students and for writing us reviews on iTunes. Jacob Stratman, I think you're really going to like this episode. Okay, here's Tina Chang. Hi, Tina. Hi. (laughs) Hi, Rachel. We have so much to talk about. Mm -hmm. And already, just from the moment you came in, um, we started talking about our kids Mm -hmm. and motherhood and book tours and readings and... And now podcasts, and so I I know that it, that actually my job is going to be to be like okay wait wait hold on hold on <laughs> let's let's go back to the book. So your new book, Hybrida, it's incredibly moving. I'm I'm really interested in both the combination um, of forms throughout the book, um, the way that they're put together, the way that the the pieces or the poems work inside. And then, of course, the content and um, Mm -hmm. the lines and the language. And I thought maybe we would actually just start uh, with the title Mm -hmm. uh, because I feel like the title is both it's it refers to all these uh, aspects of the book that I just mentioned, the content, the form. Even what's happening, I don't know how what to call it, like subformally, mm-hmm. or the form within the form within the form, or even meta formally, mm-hmm. like the idea of form, mm-hmm. which is so um, present and and interestingly explored in the book. So um, maybe since there is an answer to the question of what does the title mean mm-hmm. within the book, right. I was wondering if you could actually start by reading the beginning of um, the title piece. Okay, I can do that. Awesome. Hi, Britta, Azuhitsu. Once the past was in dialogue with the future, a hybrid form. The origin of the word hybrida is Latin from ibrida, or mongrel, a creature of mixed breeds. Open interpretation of violence, collision of selves, histories, and languages. Is language a movement of spirit expressing itself through an outward mutation? I was born in America, contributing to a long line of mixed culture, crossed boundaries, the collaborative and combustible nature of words. If I grew up with language, dual language, dual identity, how can anything feel unified? The fragmentation of the Zuhitsu welcomes randomness, collage, a piecing and piercing of memory and imagination that adds up to a feeling akin to liberation. The liberation of imagination is the body's response to dominance 
and containment, to build, speak, and write away through each darkness. Zuhitsu, erasure, reimagined aphrastic poems, words in movement, journalism in conversation with invented narrative, fairy tales fused with the lyric imagination, language in dialogue with visual art. Much of it isn't entirely new now, but now, written with a singular hand, calls to me. I think of discomfort, creating spaces where one is uneasy in order to change. Immigrant body, female body, mother body. Is the creative body inherently vulnerable? Damaged body, dream body, fluid body, boy body. Thank you. You're welcome. So this piece um, is prose. It looks like prose on the page. and mm-hmm. um, But the other pieces in the book um, have a variety of different forms. Some of them named received forms like huzzles um, uh, and or they're in couplets. Um, and then others uh, are more in free verse or they look sort of like more like free verse. And then there's this piece and others which feel maybe like essays. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, when I started writing the book, I can say that I started from a space I was just writing fairy tales or re-envisioning fairy tales because that was what I was doing often. I was sitting with my son and my daughter and 90% of the time, because they were so young, I was taking care of them. So as I was reading fairy tales to them, there was something about the existence of creature and the function of fairy tales that was very interesting to me. They placed children in situations where there was a tremendous amount of danger. They placed children in situations where they were most of the time alone. So I was fascinated why I was even as a child exposed to this because when I was younger, I remember being very, very afraid of Grimm's fairy tales and why I was passing that on to my children, it almost felt like I was obliged to read them these stories that I read and that everybody knows and they're classics. And I would always have that sort of excuse, they're classics, we have to read them, but they were very frightening. Mm. So they started off really as reinvention of these fairy tales. And then as time went on, as I was raising my children, Trayvon Martin died, Mm. Michael Brown died, Many, many black boys died. Uh, My son is of mixed race. He's Chinese and he's also Haitian American. Thinking about his existence in the United States, I was also thinking about what kind of book am I writing? Is the reinvention of fairy tales what I really want to do right now? And I immediately became very bored with my project. So the only thing that really saved me was really thinking about form. Mm. The forms that I had learned when I was in graduate school, they were classically the haiku, the sonnet, the pantoum. I was expected to write in these forms, to learn these forms, to master these forms, to understand the history of these forms. And yet 
I don't feel that I could claim ownership of them, nor did I feel fully comfortable in them. I practiced all of them and I felt like to a certain point, I would never necessarily call myself a master of them, but I mastered them as much as I could. Hmm. Um, and so when I was writing this book, I was also teaching a series of classes uh, at Sarah Lawrence and also around the country called Hybrid Beast. I was really invested in looking at forms that could sort of explode the notion of what form even is in poetry. Once we've absorbed all these poems, if, if one is a poet and practicing in these, in these forms, what do we do now? How can we claim something as fully our own? And then when I started reading Kamiko Hans, The Narrow Road to the Interior, something just clicked in me where, having understood then the nature of the Zuhitsu, and, and, and for those who are not as familiar, familiar with the Zuhitsu, it's an it's a ancient Japanese form that is actually a female form. It was that the ancient Japanese, the Japanese courtesans uh, would put a pillow. It was called a pillow book, and a, and a book was placed under the pillow. And when they woke up, they would take the pillow from under the, the book from underneath the pillow and write. And it was a form of stream of consciousness of whatever it was that they were thinking that morning would end up in the pillow book. And the Zuhitsu is derived from that, which essentially means uh, following the brush or running brush. And this was incredibly attractive to me because in answer to your question that you posed, uh, why in this particular form for this poem, because it looks like prose, I felt that in order to talk about all the things that were, were necessary, that were urgent, that they were spilling, it would, they were physically spilling out of the form. I couldn't keep them in the vessels that I had understood and studied. I needed to find another vessel and the Zuhitsu was the perfect vessel. So the Zuhitsu was probably a poem that was ongoing for probably eight years. I changed it, I rearranged it, and I think the Zuhitsu form allowed me to do that, to take huge portions out, to even fit things like media, dream, lists. It also welcomes emails. Uh, and I felt like even to fit something which I think is not talked about that often because it's so easily overlooked in the book is that there's a link to a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because you actually have to type that link, which is like W4007. There's all these letters that you must type in and actually do the work in order to see the video, which is in one of the longer poems. And um, I think I was interested in a form that could welcome that. Mm -hmm. How does a mother walk through her day making a mental list in her head of all the things that she needs to shop for, for both herself and her family. And then how does media and social media impact that mother's imagination? How does reading and then falling into the imagination of what it might be like to be Michael Brown's mother processing their child's, her child's death, what is that? How does that impact somebody who's taking that in? Because I couldn't put it away. Mm -hmm. I could never put it away. Whenever I hear or read or experiencing or experience anything of another mother, I take that in and it lives inside my body. So I thought, what form could, could manage me, could manage that experience of motherhood? 
And then, and this is the part I've been really wanting to say, <laughs> is that then I saw you, Rachel Zucker, at you were coming to Sarah Lawrence College. And they had asked me as faculty if I would actually moderate that discussion because part of the reason why they even, you know, had one of the ideas for the discussion is I had been teaching hybrid beast, hybrid beast. I became one of those professors that kept teaching the same class over and over again. And I never thought I would be that professor, but hybrid beast was able to evolve every single time I taught it. it was never the same class. I never taught the same material. I never taught the same forms. And the results of that class were so fascinating to me. So they wanted me to moderate this conversation. I was so selfish. I, I could actually feel myself being selfish. And I said, I can't. I, they said, why? I said, I just can't. I can't because I really, really need to be in the audience so mm. that I could listen. So it was a selfish move. I even brought my children. I was sitting all the way in the back. And I was completely fascinated by everything that was going on. I remember it was you, Araselis Germay, and Sam Sachs. Mm -hmm. And I remember that whole conversation, everyone's, the, the flow, movement, attitudes toward hybridity were so different. And you had actually, I remember watching you that you had actually gone through to do the research of what hybrid means derived from hybrida, mm -hmm. you know, the combination between a tame sound and a wild boar. And you actually kind of came out and said, well, let's, you know, move from there. And then you, man you managed to really talk about motherhood as a hybrid form in and of itself and the language that surrounds it. And then all of these ideas just started to really come to me. And I just had this moment of recognition like, why am I suppressing this language that mm. is so important to me? It takes up most of my life. And I think that a lot of the reason why I suppressed it is because I felt like this classic, classically female language, a language of body, a language of birth, a language of raising children, somehow it had been pushed into a space of like chick lit. You're not supposed to talk about it. And I really felt like you were at the forefront of really making it a subject matter that needed to be talked about. It was necessary. It was urgent. It needed to be shared. Everybody has a mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't be born. So I don't know why we're pushing it to the periphery. Mm -hmm. I just remember feeling so moved by that talk, just feeling recognized in some way. And that's the beauty between a writer and their audience is that they might not even know how deeply impactful their words and their work is I remember buying your book mothers and being so nervous to hand it to you to, to sign. I was like shaking, not really even saying anything. And you probably don't even remember uh, signing the book, but just wanting it to be signed and just going home and sitting with the book and then having this other form of recognition as I was reading the book just all the things that mothers have to go through, nursing, thinking about their writing, thinking about their mentors, thinking about the, the female poets who have impacted them, still feeling insecurities, trying to get through that in order to be you know, this figure who, who parents, who's mm -hmm. guiding another person through the world. And I felt like all of it was coming into play in your work, and it was in, in a pro prosaic form. And I thought, oh my gosh, if... Rachel Zucker can do this. I can, I can, I can do that. I can allow myself mm -hmm. to do it. 
And so you were a really pivotal figure in just me saying I could do this. Mm. No one stopping me. <laughs> no poetry god came down from the skies to say you can't mix your forms. And the more I started to give myself that freedom, the more I thought it was deeply, deeply in tune in terms of talking about the vessels who we are as humans walking through the earth. I was like, yes, it was a very meta experience. I'm talking about form and poetry, and I'm talking about the form, the vessel of who we are, the vessel of our bodies that contain our ideas. That's essentially who we are. Mm -hmm. You know, we're a bag of, you know, bones and skin, thought, spirit. And I thought, how do I write that book? And you know, it's a very you know f well known idea. Write the book that you don't think has been written yet. Mm -hmm. And I and it was a very scary prospect for me. The entire, the entire prospect of writing a book or any book, the current book that we're writing that we care about so deeply, it feels frightening. But this book felt more frightening for me to write than any other book. And I had thought to myself, if this is the first and also the last book, I will ever write, I will, be, I will be just happy ending right here. And I still feel the same exact way. I felt like I needed to say everything that I needed to say in this collection. And it took me eight years to write. So mm. from the time my son was born, the beginning of his form, right? It comes from nothing. It comes from an idea. It comes from hope, shapelessness. And then suddenly this form arrives in our lives. And it's just... It's the being is so small and yet the idea is so large. It explodes beyond the actual physical shape of that being. And I thought, how can poems do that? Mm. And so each day that I was writing the poem, I was just allowing for that to happen, to travel through the poem. And I, I wanted to also, oh, I hoped that the reader was having that experience too with Zuhitsu, with the mm. Zuhitsu that I was working on. That's why it changed so many times. I was adding so many different elements, then feeling like maybe other elements, I didn't have the right to say certain things. Mm. Because also, what kind of form speaks to race, speaks to history, speaks to violence? I didn't know. And I think that part of the beautiful part for me of writing the book is like expressing those questions in the book, of actually having that question in the Zuhitsu. How do I talk? Do I know what it's like to live life as a boy? Do I know what it's like to live life specifically as a black boy? And how do I talk about his blackness without appropriating his blackness? And then the line is, I return to the language of mothers. Mm -hmm. Because the language of mothers like moves against, like it would seem that naturally would go hand in hand with some sort of ownership, right? I give life to this person, then do I own some aspect of his DNA, his life? And the answer is always, as, as all mothers go through, absolutely not. I give birth to this child, that child grows and is an independent being without me. And I always say to my children, specifically to my son, I said, you know, I really only have one role in this life, and that is to teach you how to live in this world without me. Mm. And he always says, Mom, that is just so sad. Why do you have to be such a downer? It's heavy. No wonder my son is having nightmares because I say heavy stuff like that. And that is true. Mm -hmm. It is our role. So the idea of ownership, it, it just flies away. Mm -hmm. There is no ownership. And so I think that to live within that sort of like 
container of a body and then to claim like, well, we are really, there is real, there's no sense of anything. And how do I, and how do I guide you through this idea? And so I think I was like living out all of these ideas within the book and the mm. Zuhitsu helped me so much because it was flexible enough. Mm -hmm. if we could imagine a form that is not rigid mm -hmm. because I think I grew up and many of us grew up who studied poetry. There is a certain amount of rigidity, mm -hmm. like even as I'm writing the hustle. I mean, I was taught by Aga Shahid Ali who made the hustle, you know, what it was in the United States with his book, Ravishing Disunities. And he was like, no, there are rules. There are rules. So I grew up in poetry thinking, I must adhere to the rules. I must listen to the guidelines. I must follow, follow, follow. And what if at some point in your writing life, you're no longer following, you're in the middle of no man's land mm -hmm. and you're lost. And that's exactly where I was. I was so petrified. I was just telling Mira Jacob and we've been doing all these talks because her book, Good Talk and Hybrida, have so much in common because of the subject of mixed race. Our boys are the same age. They are they are both 10 years old now. We went through the same place, era of writing our books. The nuances are different and the genres are different, but we went through so much that was similar. And a lot of it was about, we talked about crying. We talked about crying as we were writing these books. That was also something that I felt like I wasn't allowed to talk about the experience that women go through specifically uh, when they're writing with this kind of intensity with something that they care about so much, which is their children. Mm -hmm. So I was crying through it because a, a lot of it had to do with, well, and it still exists now, even after the book is published, what world am I raising my child in? Is it truly safe? And so the, the book really grapples with the sense of fear and safety. Mm-hmm imagined fear that, I mean, okay, let's just talk about imagined fear that a mother well, has. Well, hold on, because I, fear is so important and, and, mm -hmm. and the world and imagined real. Yeah. But I wanted to just say one thing. Um, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about um, form and one of the ways in which there's something really interesting. I actually have a quote from you. Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> um, let me find it. Um, yeah, this was in uh, an interview you gave in Poetry International. Mm -hmm. And you said this beautiful thing. So you're talking about how many forms there are in Hybrida. And you mm -hmm. say, I was seeking forms to embrace chaos. I was also letting go. Let go, one of my great professors said. Mm -hmm. He repeated this again and again during my education. I don't think I fully knew what he meant until writing the poems for Hybrida. So... The book and what you're saying now, I feel I, I, I resist this kind of talk because sometimes I worry it's like essentialist in some way. Mm -hmm. But there is a female, uh, there are female forms or what do we mean by female forms? And I would go even one step further and say, what is the form? What are mother forms, you know, mm -hmm. mother language, mother forms? And I think one of them has to do with there's a 
a, a mostly male conception or traditionally male conception of form as being something that's rigid, a container, a vessel. Mm-hmm. You pour it in, right? You know, the, the, that, okay, well, you've got the glasses all lined up and, mm-hmm. and you pour the liquid in and that's the relationship between the poem and the, and the form. But I think for me anyway, and I think what you're saying in part is that the experience of motherhood is so porous Mm. and so there is no rigid form that can embody an experience in which you know okay your son comes into your bed which is his bed his bed your bed Mm -hmm. my my two older sons are they don't technically live here um they are in college now. They're not separate from me. They call me. They text me, you know, multiple times a day. And even if they didn't, m- me, my being sitting here, um, it, it is absolutely true what you say that, like, I also feel that part of my job in the world and as their mother is to make them be able to live without me. I think about that all the time. Mm-hmm. But I am never without them also. Right. And I do so, so, like, every part of the experience of mothering is about separation and attachment, separation and attachment, independence and connection. And and I think that's part of why when you came in, we wanted to talk about all these things. Mm -hmm. We want all these things in the conversation. We want all these things in the book. We want the form that, that hasn't really existed in some ways, we have to repurpose them. We have to reuse them. We have to we have to mess them up. We have to put them together in new ways that will allow all that stuff in the book, so that you can both hold on and let go. Mm-hmm. You know, which I just I mean I I I the the moment that I read that in the interview, I almost like started crying because I just felt like it's 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 very emotional. It's not just okay, what are the rules of this and are we breaking the rules? Because at the underneath the way in which you're using form is, are these real life and death questions? Mm-hmm. And these, you know, the questions that are most at the heart of, you know, raising another person mm-hmm. in the world. So, raising another human. It's true. I mean, I think... You know, I I actually appreciate that conversation, and I feel like you and your work, you have really brought that as something that's central, you know, for me. Mm -hmm. It's like, is there a female language? And actually, in terms of discovering the Zuhitsu, it is a legitimate female language because it was created by females. Yes. And I love being able to just say that as like an actual fact, you Mm -hmm. know. It was actually created by females. And so in that way, I thought, females know what I'm talking about. And it's true when we're talking about the sort of boundlessness. So we're talking about boundlessness Mm -hmm. of love. And we're also talking about boundlessness of form, right? Mm-hmm. So when you were saying, you were giving the example, when your son wanders into your bed, is it his bed? Is it your bed? Let's go back, you know, even further, you know, when they're, when they're creating themselves in our bodies, like who's doing the creating? Are we, are they? We're doing the creating together. Mm-hmm. And that's why when something is, when, especially when they're very young, when something is actually happening to them, we feel it in our bodies, in mm-hmm. our actual physical bodies. And that is something that is, I'm sorry, very distinctly different between the mother and the father. They were born from us. And it's not to give it like a hyper importance, 
but maybe I am giving it hyper importance and it's okay to do that. Like I also realize it's okay to say that, that this child was born for me when they are physically hurting. I feel the physicality of it. So I guess one thing that, that I, cause I've, I've tried, I've struggled with this a lot, you know, um, forefronting and exploring the, um, the forms and the, and the language of our foremothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I use foremothers, you know, on purpose, the, the, the language and the forms that were created by, um, women who were mothers in one capacity or another is really important for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also really important for men who haven't, who, who don't have, who, how do I say this? Who also need to discover the language, um, and the forms to describe their experiences, um, which, you know, for, for men who are spending a lot of their time with young children, um, or caring for another person, it could be an adult who's sick or that, that, that have, uh, an experience on a daily basis that is very fluid, that is very porous, that is very interruptible, that is very interrupted, that is very, um, self and other all of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that mothers or women or biological mothers are the only ones who have those Mm -hmm. experiences. I think that the language and the forms have often come out of those experiences, which are gendered and are biological, but the, and then have been sort of lost to us or mostly ignored because of the heteropatriarchy. Mm -hmm. But now the truth is like, I don't, I don't think that, you know, adoptive moms who haven't had the experience of, uh, pregnancy and birth, um, my understanding is that they have the, that same uh, pain mm-hmm. of, um, you know, it, when something happens to the child. And there are biological mothers who don't feel mm-hmm. that too. Absolutely. So I think it's, it, it's, that's why it's so tricky, I feel like, because we want to like be really mindful of difference, right? And we don't want to say like everybody's experience is the same or mm-hmm. all women or all mothers or whatever. Um, you know, just like it's different. I, I was noticing that your son is so much a part of this book and your mm-hmm. daughter is so little a mm-hmm. part of this book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if that had to do just with their ages or with particularly your son's gender um, because... It is, that's also another piece of, of trying to, I mean, just as you said, you don't, you're so connected mm-hmm. to your child, but there's this very interesting, at least in my experience, I only have sons and their gender is very uh, confusing to me in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. It's beautiful. It's interesting. It's scary. It's, um, you know, how do I honor this part of them that is not a part of me um, in certain ways, but also like break down all of those gender expectations and not say like, oh, because he's a boy, he's like this and I'm a woman, so Mm -hmm. I'm like this. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to just go back because you said so many great things and to go back to some of the original things that you were talking about when we were talking about the mother experience, the father experience, male and female experience. uh, I think it's also really important to say that as as I've taught you know, we really also need to be thinking about trans communities as well, because in terms of thinking about the fluidity of bodies, uh, 
like when I am teaching and I teach this material, it's really, really interesting to see all the different kinds of communities that can connect to this. Mm -hmm. And I mean, communities who have ever felt othered, whoever felt like this vessel of my body, I don't get it. I don't understand. I can only speak from myself. I don't get it sometimes. I don't, it's like what you were saying. I don't know where I end uh, and someone else begins. But I think like in thinking about these kinds of forms, they can give, you know, so life and shape to so much more than what it initially intended to be. And I think that was a new idea for me Mm -hmm. because when I was learning about forms, it's like, this is it. That's done. It's over. This is how, and you must adhere. So what are the rules? I'm making Mm -hmm. little quote marks for the Zuhitsu. Uh, You know, okay. So this is the tough thing. I was teaching in, I was teaching in Hong Kong. I was teaching prose writers. So I started off by having them collect information. Uh, I, I asked them about dreams. I asked them about some of the pivotal memories of their lives. I actually had them exploring the school, picking up objects. And they came back and they were so frustrated. And they said, we're just frustrated. We just, we don't understand the point. Like, what's the point of what you're, what's the point? (laughs) And I realized that in our formal education, I could only speak for myself and I could speak for the class that I was teaching that it often is, you know, what's our end goal, right? You know, we're, we're, we're conditioned, not just in our society in many is like, what's the outline? What's the outcome? What is the best practices? It's very businessy when you think about it. And I said, what if we conducted poetry and prose like it wasn't a business? Mm-hmm. I said, for example, let me, I said, let me give you a good example. I said, you're walking along the beach. You're picking up shells. You're picking up stones. You're looking at the waves. You're looking at the sky. You'll bend down. You'll pick up something else. Maybe you'll even think like the shell reminds you for some reason of someone else or a memory will come back to you. I said, is anybody standing there telling you which shells and which stones to pick up? And are you questioning, is this right? Am I picking this up for the right reason? I said, you're not outlining that experience. It doesn't have to be something where you have an end goal, right? I said, so think of writing like that. Mm. Free yourself. Free associate. And so, uh, so some of the parameters are think of several memories, uh, record dreams for a whole week, start to pick up objects in the city, in the area where you live, don't have any particular reason why you're picking them up. Um, go to a library, go to a museum, start to note certain uh, images that are affecting you, and then bringing it all to the table and then working in the same ways that when you were very young. Remember working with collages? I mean, I was, I was obsessed with collage when I was a teenager, but it, that, that collage was really kind of superficial, like teen beat. I would collage together all of the people that I idolized along with some quotes from a magazine and put it all together. Mm-hmm. So Zuhitsu works much in the same way, you know, and the, it's fun. It's mm-hmm. a fun form because not only we're we collecting those memories, the dream, we can collect things like texts, pivotal texts that for some reason we can't let go of, that if we could save it, we'd probably take a snapshot of it. Pivotal, pivotal emails. And of course, as you can imagine, for somebody who is used to organization, if I ask them to collage, it might still feel difficult. Mm -hmm. I usually give them a night. 
I said, I'm not giving you any more. I'm giving, going to give you some examples of Zuhitsu, and I'll give them examples of past students mm-hmm. who created it. Um, these are examples, and I'm not going to give you any more instruction. That's it. And they were incredibly upset yeah. and said, okay, I don't really, I just don't get it. I said, stop saying that. Just go home and start the process. And they came back the next day. And we all started reading our pieces and just really emotional, beautiful pieces came out of it where some students realized that they were speaking really about home because so many of them had been in so many different places. Some of them wound up speaking about family. Some of them wound up speaking about language. And they were using all these things that seemed random, that seemed chaotic in their mind. They were placing it together. And yet... It didn't feel chaotic once it came about. It could feel random where they were allowed to meander into certain places, but once they actually did the physical work of writing and putting it together, it was amazing how everybody came back from the day before feeling completely frustrated with me as their teacher, Mm -hmm. with the process, just everything. I could see the looks on their faces. They just, they were angry. And the next day just... This completely different feeling washing over them. Like, wow, that was so freeing. It was amazing. And then reading them out loud to each other, they were all in support of the fact that we are beings that are trying to make sense of so much information. But not only information, because I I think that sometimes information is prized over memory, over feeling, But it was all of that coming together Mm -hmm. that I think was very surprising to them, that they could be their whole self, their whole being, without separating it into different categories, without slicing it. This belongs here. Uh, Motherhood belongs here. Me as a writer belongs here. Uh, As a public figure, I belong here. Uh, Now as a daughter, I belong here. It could all come together in one piece. And that lesson for them, and also for me, because I'm learning along with them every single time, and that's why a hybrid beast course is incredibly interesting to me because nothing ever comes out of it that's a repeat of anything I've ever done. And so in that way, it keeps giving more and more life, more ideas. Every single time I teach the class, I'm thinking, oh, this is a great idea for the next class. I'm going to try this. We could try audio. That's what a lot of them Mm -hmm. did too, is that sometimes they would kind of pause what was happening in their Zuhitsu and there would be an audio clip or Mm. I pause something that's in uh, the Zuhitsu in my book and then there's a YouTube video. And So, okay, but so what? Yeah, I mean, you know, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So so when you teach hybrid beast, if you start with a zuhitsu or if you at some point, you know, in 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 a in a class, uh, get there and they have this experience, which it's I'm so familiar with, where they're like, you know, they've been trained, they they got to where they are academically by compartmentalizing, you know, and uh, and asking what is the point and what is the assignment and how can I fulfill the assignment? And so it's really, it can be very scary to, to, to kind of bust out of that, but so satisfying. But then my question is, are they, are they forever ruined for the Petrarchan sonnet? You know, or are they well, like, what happens next? I never start the Zuhitsu ever. Uh-huh. It's just too frightening. Uh-huh. It's like, ju- it really is like being placed in a field with no clothes on 
in the middle of a country that you've never been to. Somebody <laughs> just dropped you there. <laughs> just go run, be free. <laughs> You're not going to know what to do. Uh huh. So I do. I do actually start off with forms that they recognize. Mm. I do want them to practice in forms that they've heard of before. So mm-hmm. we might start off with a sign up. We might, or we might start off with an ode. We might start off with, and we'll move our way into elegies. I want them to know all of that. Mm-hmm. I want them to practice that. I need for them to feel the sense of control mm-hmm. that they have over language, the vessel that they are working in. They need to know the vessels and understand that each vessel functions very separately. I'm functioning in a completely different mindset in haiku than I am in, say, a sestina. I mean, us practicing, we know, right? We know the emotions. It's very emotional. We know the emotions that we're practicing and with and the tools as we're creating a haiku. And when we're creating a sestina, most people are very afraid of writing the sestina because it's so rule bound. Mm -hmm. If it's so rule bound, how could you ever get to the essence, the true essence of emotion that you're trying to get to? We still practice that. So I get them to become accustomed to that shape of what it is that they're creating, how when you pour into all the different vessels, what happens? Could they take a similar idea and pour into each one just to see what happens? And then somewhere like in the middle of the semester, we, at this point we've talked about ecrastic poems, we've talked about dream poems, we talked about mosaic poems, and then it's almost like three quarters of the way <laughs> through their learning through the semester, I kind of come at them with the zuhitsu. And then they almost have to release everything that they mm. just learned. And so I love to see that point, but I could never start with the zuhutsu because you're starting with formlessness. And how could anybody start with formlessness if they haven't understood form? Mm. Right. So I think that one has to exercise within the tradition and, and, and really fully have had an education in the tradition to bust out of the tradition, right? So I think that there's, there's a usefulness in, in all of that. Um, I hope that was an answer to the question. It's definitely an answer to the question. I, I don't, I, I have mixed feelings about it because I think in, um, in my teaching recently, I've tried to start not, not literally with the Zuhitsu, but with Zuhitsu mind, um, with, with chaos, rather than going from form and control to chaos. And I will say it is not working great, (laughs) but I'm struggling a little bit to, it's like, I don't want to engage the, the, what you're saying makes absolute sense to me. And I think that if I knew I would have the same students again, or if I had longer, I think I would um, do more of what you're describing. And I think I maybe should anyway. Um, because I think that there's, I, I'm, I'm sort of trying to get them to break all of these rules and engage in this very non-traditional way of talking about other people's work and their mm. own work and thinking about their work. And But they don't know the forms that I'm, they don't know the rules that I'm asking them to break. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm struggling because I don't want to, um, kind of for myself or for them, teach them the rules first. Mm-hmm. Somehow with teaching, with writing, like it does seem complicated. Like where, d- 
like I don't I, I don't want to I don't want to start by telling them this is what a, a good poem is or this is this is these are the rules of this or this is you know this is the expectation or this is the way to talk about it but if you don't do that you have you have a lot of chaos mm-hmm. and um and I, I I'm not I haven't figured out mm-hmm. my way through that yeah I mean I think it's like the meditative practice of calming the mind mm-hmm. I think that if I if I started immediately talking about chaos, I think there would be a sense of, uh, because I think that when I'm teaching, the first things that I need to do is really gain a sense of trust among our group. Mm-hmm. And I think giving them some kind of steady footing where maybe they can sort of rest in the rules a little bit and they can feel sure about themselves as they're writing, like they completed something that had like set amount of rules, set amount of end words, set amount of lines, they accomplished it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't feel, and and this is, you know, what is the measure of success? Maybe they didn't feel that successful and what it is that they're doing, but they finished it. Mm. If were I to teach this, if it's in the very beginning, it's endless. It, you can't, you don't know when it actually ends. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is something that I c- can't put on their plates right away. I need to find the space in the mind to become, um, and the and the parameters in the very beginning are really really helpful for them because then we can talk about what parameters do. But I mean, I think that too, and in, in you know, just thinking about you know writing it, just writing it when I was practicing it is that when I was writing Zuhitsu Hybrida Zuhitsu in the book. Um, I also had to decide for myself, you know, when was this poem going to end? Mm. That's hard. I mean, I think it's hard even for the person who's teaching the form. It's like, when do I decide? It's like saying, when, uh, when, where does race end? <laughs> right. Where does history end? History never ends. So long as we are alive and even beyond us, history will never end. And I think that in that way, it was very hard to find a stopping point. So I found myself just working and working and working for years and then almost having to be a, a sort of a teacher or editor to myself to say, stop, you need, I needed to give myself an actual date mm. when I stopped writing it. I think in that way, I think in that way, you know, the parameters of having text, of having um, dream, of having um, YouTube videos, it kind of gave me a little bit of a like anchor, anchor, an anchoring to what it was that I was writing. Well, so, okay, are you ever going to go back to, in your own writing, I don't mean literally, but to a less Zuhitsu? Because in some ways, I feel like the whole book is a Zuhitsu, even mm-hmm. though it contains Zuhitsus and many other kinds of forms. There's something about the way that you've kind of enlarged that uh, mindset or that practice of putting things in and having things uh, sort of sit next to each other that wouldn't necessarily um, sit next to each other, a kind of like simultaneity and capaciousness that I, you know, that I really love. So the whole book sort of becomes a space of that. And even though, yes, the book ends, even the way that it ends is actually not a classical ending, um, that it ends with um, this drawing uh, mm-hmm. by your son. Um, and I th- And I think, so I guess my question is, in your next work, um, I don't know if you're working on something else now, um, but or in what you imagine working on, can you go back to a more rule-bound 
um, kind of formal or traditionally formal, I really should say, or maybe I should say traditionally masculine form um, of work, would you want to, or do you feel kind of like uh, the same way you're like, well, I wouldn't start my class with a zuhitsu. It's something we do later on. So, but now you're in, you're in that stage of your life. Mm -hmm. What comes next? Yeah. It's sort of like once you meet up with the zuhitsu, what do you do now? Yes. Um, I'm pretty sure that I won't be going back to, well, I won't be doing what I was doing before. Mm. I mean, I think with my first book, I almost wrote the entire book in tercets. Mm -hmm. I won't be doing any of that. I know that for sure. Um, but I know that, and I might not necessarily be writing the Zuhitsu in, in my next book, or there might be one or there might be two, but I don't think, I don't think I would want to repeat myself again. And I think that's as artists, we always hope to do that, not to repeat ourselves. We want to try and engage with something new. So, I mean, I love the fact that I, uh, I was recently at a festival and a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for a year, he said, I have to tell you about this really exciting form. I mean, we're, we're editors together. And he said, I have to tell you about this really because he knows I'm obsessed with form. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you about this exciting form from India. And it's so interesting to me. And, and I said, you have to send me that information. So I think that where I move from here is forms are endless. There, there, there are so many forms that we actually don't know about. Mm. I do think that we're in a very specific time right now in which we are as artists, whatever it is that we're making is, is responding to that time. And I like to think that in the time that we're living, we are the creators of what is going to happen next. I never felt confident enough to say that because I think throughout my youth, I was so busy learning. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn that I never really saw myself as the forefront of anything. <laughs> you know, that let me, let me take in who has come before me. Let me understand the masters. And then what if someone has taken a good deal of time and taken a, a good deal of their lives understanding the masters? The question is, well, what happens now? Do I ever step into some sort of realm where if I, you know, to call oneself a master would be pretty, uh, you know, audacious, but could I be masterful at something enough where I've, if I've studied it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that I then feel confident enough to create something of my very own. And I think poetry, you know, being a poet, practicing through sort of this course of being a mother, I think that also kind of inspires me to think like, well, you know, what shape is that? You know, which, what shape does that come in? And, and I think that is sort of, uh, that kind of gives me the confidence that if I, if I can sort of learn day by day and come face to face with the humility of what it means to be a mother means also that I feel like I fail constantly all right. the time, every day, every minute I'm mm -hmm. failing. I might cry in the morning if they're giving me a hard time in the morning and they don't want to get off to school and I have responsibilities. I don't want them to be late because it impacts their record, which then impacts middle school, then high school and college. And I'm thinking far into, and everything but that also is working its way into an art form. Mm -hmm. I, I have, I'm, 
life is so frustrating and language is so frustrating because I have four questions I want to ask you next. Okay. Even if I get to all of them, I want each one to be the next one. And I'm suffering over this. Okay. But so let me just ask a, 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 a just who are the um, mother writers that have uh, really kind of helped you or led you along the way? I know Kamiko Han for sure. Yeah. Um, Toni Morrison, you just mentioned. Yeah. Toni Morrison. Lucille Clifton was like a mother grandmother mm. that was very, very much on my mind. And I have to say, well, you, I mentioned you <laughs> a you. lot. <laughs> and Brenda Shaughnessy was very, mm-hmm. very much on my mind. It might have had something to do with the fact that I, I knew her family, but mm-hmm. it was really just, it was the art that came from it. Yeah. You know, when I read, when I read the whole collection and I got up to Our Andromeda, I mean when I was reading that poem, I was just really going through a a life experience. I was living so fully living inside the poem that I forgot I was reading. I mean, this was what happens to the best in the best of art. If we're watching a movie, we forget we're watching a movie. We actually imagine that we're in the scene and that's what was happening with Brenda's work. Mm -hmm. And I lost sight of the fact that I was, that I was breathing that I had to keep reminding myself to breathe and then when it reached the sort of the the last line, I just I thought, you know, and we think this about all great work. There's nothing left to write. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's really what I thought after I, I read that poem. And, and not and and this is the wonderful thing about being, you know, sort of women in a circle together, is like it wasn't there was no jealousy, there was no nothing. Mm-hmm. It was just yeah. a, there's nothing left to write after I read this. And same too, you know, when I was reading all of Kamiko Han's work about being a daughter and, mm-hmm. and a mother or reading her work um, and these beautiful admissions, I remember like one of her, one of her admissions in the, in the book, the speaker says, sometimes my daughter is so beautiful that I have to stop myself from staring and just look in the other direction. Mm. And I don't know why that line impacts me so much. But it encapsulated a feeling that I have felt that sometimes perhaps I'm staring at my I'm staring at my children for too long because I'm marveling. I'm marveling that they came from me and I'm marveling that they're existing now. And I'm marveling that I actually can take a distance and step away from them and look at them. And it's a it's a beautiful thing or to even imagine. I was like, oh, I would took part in creating something this spectacular, I can't, I mean, so, so those are, those were pivotal figures mm-hmm. thinking about loose. Oftentimes when I think of mother figures, I also thought about Carolyn Forche mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. I think I also met her. I think I met her Carolyn Forche at the Napa Valley writers conference and I met her son mm-hmm. there. He must've been eight years old and I remember he was doing this little dance for us and I remember this just this moment of recognition where she I didn't see her for a second as a poet but I saw her as a mother Mm -hmm. because I saw her laughing and 
admiring her son for what it was that he was doing, which was basically being himself, being silly and doing this beautiful dance and everybody was around him just looking. Because when a child, when there were a lot of adults around in a room and it's mostly almost all adults and there's one child, no one can help but just look at that child. It's just such a breath of fresh air. And so I think her work which doesn't always talk about motherhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I admire her work in terms of its ability to think in a sort of global consciousness. I think that's why I always admired her. But I think in just that moment of making a switch for me, of seeing her as somebody who was mothering someone, uh, that moment I think back to a a lot. And I thought back to it a lot when I was writing the book. I know you and Mira Jacob have had um, several events together, mm-hmm. and I have a question I'm a little shy to ask, but mm-hmm. I'm going to ask it. Okay. Have the two of you ever talked about whether um, the process of um, the process of your investigation and in your writing, your emotional linguistic uh, investigation of um, being the mother of a mixed race child and thinking about um, all of the ways in which um, your child is going to go out into the world. But one thing that's slightly different between your two circumstances is in Mira's book, she is often um, making a connection with her son around their shared brownness. Mm -hmm. And she's not so much looking at um, the ways in which he's Jewish or white or she's very, it's it's very present. It's very much that she's, but her position is, is along that connection. And in your case, you are thinking about your son's blackness um, as something that, you know, you're, you're his mother, you're connected to him, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's not so much a, um, you're not so much in this book thinking about his Chinese heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, I wonder if, have you ever talked to Mira about the, the sort of like slightly different positionality uh, of the two of you and how maybe that affects, uh, or if it does at all, mm-hmm. um, you're thinking not so much about motherhood, but actually about some of the things you're talking about now, mm. about the mirror and identification and otherness and connection. Yeah, I mean, we haven't gotten to that part of the discussion yet because each time we're together, we're really taking questions from the audience. And I'm, and at that point, we might they might not have even read the books. Mm. So they're coming at it really fresh where they know that they have an interest. Usually what brings the audience to us is they have an interest in the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And they know that the subject matter is mixed race, but they haven't really gotten to reading the details of the book yet to really... That's why it's really nice to read them side by side mm-hmm. to see and understand the stance of the mother. And I can only say for myself, like one of the interesting questions, like we in the recent... Um, event that we did together, we had to ask each other questions. Uh-huh. They said, well, is, there, is there anything that you haven't gotten a chance to ask each other that you'd, li- you'd like to ask? And she had such an interesting question, which was, is there anything you had to leave out of the book? Huh. And uh, which speaks to your question now, um, there were so many poems that I left out of the book. I mean, one can't write for eight years. I mean, that would be, you know, a thousand page book or more. So there were many, many books that I sort of left on the floor, left on the desktop that I thought this doesn't belong here. 
So I think it was a, it was probably like, you're asking a question that was probably the scariest thing for me as I was writing the book. And I think it was something that it was like the core of what you're saying I fought with mm. the entire time to the point that sometimes I just stopped writing. And then there was another part of me that said, no, you know, you have every right mm -hmm. to write about your son. And there was a question for me as I was writing it. Why am I not focusing more on his Asian American heritage? Why am I focusing on his Haitian American heritage or his blackness here in the U.S.? I think that throughout my entire life, I was really trying to figure out my Asian American background. And it's very, very different than someone who grows up in Asia. Mm -hmm. When I was teaching in Asia, I remember a peer saying to me, you Asian Americans, you're always trying to figure yourself out. And like, there's no difficulty here in Asia. We actually know, you know, exactly who we are. There's not the struggle of like, who am I? What is my identity? We know exactly who we are. Um, you know, there's lots of communities in Asia that would probably argue against that, depending on what their individual set of experiences are. Um, but I can say for myself, growing up Asian American, I was really confused. Mm. I did go through um, a, a lot of different phases in my life where I wasn't really sure what values... Um, who I was supposed to hang out with, kind of literature I was supposed to read. And it took me a really long time to get there. And by the time I had my son, I had my son when I was about 40 years old. Mm -hmm. I kind of thought I had myself figured out. Mm. I was fairly certain that I knew who I was. I had, and this is from the help of, of Asian American communities who had, especially writing communities, the Asian American Writers Workshop, um, individuals from Kundiman who I was friends with who, um, we were all existing as peers together, writing together, experiencing the work of one another that I felt like, okay, I think there's certain parts of myself that I feel very comfortable with now. And then when I gave birth to my son, and there was, a, there was an aspect of it that I wrote about in a modern, a modern love piece mm -hmm. that I really had to come to terms with an aspect of racism mm -hmm. in my family that I'd never thought about really very deeply. I knew that I knew that my stepfather was very racist. I knew that growing up it made me feel incredibly uncomfortable. But I didn't know how much the discomfort would affect me so very deeply when I was pregnant mm -hmm. with my son. I was fighting with myself in so many different ways. Like why am I even remotely even for a second inheriting this racism mm -hmm. like and I called it racism for myself because I wasn't that open with my family when I was pregnant with my son until until maybe my seventh month mm -hmm. I really wanted to talk to them openly about my husband and who I love and that um none of it should make any difference and all of it made all the difference <laughs> at the same time so I think that when I was writing the book, I had gone through a series of a li just life, just life, living through all of these emotions that I think it was that kind of experience that I really needed to, for myself, explore further in, in the book. Mm -hmm. um, because those are the parts, and I think that all of us go through this as, as writers, that was, that was the aspect of the story that was calling to me. Mm -hmm. That makes so much N sense to me. Only because, only because when we're raising children, 
it's a matter of life and death, isn't it? Yeah. And we started talking about this before, about the imagined state of, the imagined fears. And so there were very real things going on in my life at that point, which was um, the inherent racism that was not happening with my entire family, but somebody who had already passed away, like his ghost was still living with me and really upsetting me and bothering me because racism has eternal ghosts Mm -hmm. and I could not shake him and I could not get rid of him. And so that was haunting me while I was pregnant and it haunted me while I wrote the book. So that was in a way imagined. It was real at one time, but then after he's gone, can't we say it's imagined, but no, we, we embed it somewhere very deep within us. So I wanted very much to explore that. And then during that time, it was so much in the forefront, so much in the forefront of the news. Um, the young boys who were dying at the hands of authority, I could not stop thinking about their mothers. I mean, mm-hmm. constantly. It was just um, it was just an obsession. I would sort of wake up thinking about them, think about them during the course of the day, go to sleep thinking about them, and then also denying, denying the fact that I could write about it. Mm-hmm. So after days and days, months and months of denial, I thought the imagination really needs to do something here. And can I write something where I'm not taking any ownership at all of his blackness, but I could love him and write through the experience of being a mother by being side by side with him? Is that, is that a perspective that's worthy? And there were many times during the writing of it where I did imagine audiences being upset or angry. And I did imagine audiences um, being upset about aspects like appropriation. So mm-hmm. as I was writing the book, I was pre- after I was done with a good majority of it, I was very, very consistently showing it to friends saying, I don't even want to tell you about my vision. I don't want to tell you about the vision for the book at all. Mm-hmm. Could you just read it and just give me your thoughts and tell me any place in this book where I have just done wrong, that I have done what history tells me not to do, mm-hmm. and let me know. And it was a very surprising event to be able to share it with very, very close readers, very close poet friends who just gave it back to me and say, now all you have to do is just go, just publish it. I'm like, really? There was never anything where they said, no, wow. Mm -mm. No. I said, would you tell me? They said, of course. Mm. Hello. I'm your (laughs) closest reader, closest Uh friends. Why would we not? tell you when something has gone awry there were pieces that they said this doesn't maybe doesn't belong here it's Mm -hmm. just maybe it's not fitting in with the overall vision but I mean I was really ready for very deep philosophical discussions about point of view Mm -hmm. will you actually read the first poem in the book because I feel like it's so much a part of this and it, it will help listeners to understand what we're talking about the stakes and the okay and the way that you've done it So this is the first poem. This is the first poem of Hybrida, and it's called He Pronoun. Everywhere I look, I see him. 
I have a right to fear for him, though I have no right to claim his color. His blackness is his to own. And what will my mouth say of that sweetness? Am I colorless, worn like a veil, invisible, but present? He is a word grown upright, and some claim he is journalism, media around me, so much light filtered through, so much video of him, I shut it out, the body shot through, and I will not let him out the door. Sideways, I view a lens. If you could see the green field, the cows with their maternal gazes, instinct at their hooves, leaning into calves, edging in. They come closer. When there is no more color, I turn an old-fashioned knob of the TV, black and white frames, where I view a hose releasing water, dogs bark at the leash of time. My son turns off the television, believing it's an ancient toy. He sits on my lap, and we lean against a wall. He and I in the room. We watch the door. Mm. I, I love this poem, and I love it as an opener and as everything we're talking about, the way it moves from the I to the he to the we mm-hmm. really carefully mm-hmm. and mindfully. That was a very, in some ways, a very hard poem to write. And I sort of, and and as we know, when we're creating a manuscript, order is everything. So originally that was somewhere in the middle of the book. And Mm -hmm. then I decided as a sort of independent idea to just move it to the front. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some readers had said, oh, do you think that that poem is strong enough to move to the front? I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. like one of your longer pieces that, you know, really, really powerful. Like, do you want to move such a subtle poem up to the front? I said, I do, because it's actually not subtle at all. (laughs) I said, it's actually kind of is almost presents all the ideas of the book that in a very short poem of all the things that I'm trying to express and say, there is a he, and that's why it's called he pronoun. Mm. And so when I thought about the significance of he pronoun, I thought, you know, this is the life of a boy and this is the boy on the cover. And this mm-hmm. is his actual silhouette on the mm-hmm. cover. I want to find some way of centering myself by thinking about him. And I want to find in a space of a poem that we're both together and we are very separate. And that his experiences are his own. And also to be able to talk about the impact of media, which is really only in a couple of lines, you know, so much video of him, I shut it out, this idea that the videos and the media that I'm watching impacts my sense of this imagined fear. Mm -hmm. And then the place that gets a little tricky is the imagined fear could possibly be a real fear. Mm -hmm. Now, um, some people might say, well, that's not because he's of mixed race. You know, he probably looks more like you than he looks like his dad. Who's to say, you know, who is really to say, because I could see and feel and sense as I walk through the world with him, as I see his peers, as I see who reacts to him, that his community is seeing him as a boy of color. Mm -hmm. 
And we live a life where he is absolutely proud of that. But then I know that the recognition of who he is, the color of his skin, like impacts how safe he might be in the world. So then it moves from an imagined fear to a true and real fear. And I think that is really at the heart of the book is what is, what is imagined? What is real? So then the more I sort of write, I started writing the individual poems, the more I started getting my footing as we do with any book that we write, you know, in the beginning, we're not really sure what we're doing. We're kind of just waiting in the water, getting our feet wet. And then as I was starting to write each of the individual poems, I felt stronger and stronger and less and less insecure about being able to write about these aspects of my son's life and, and the fear that I felt. Um, but then I thought, you know, the, I, I don't also, also want to be writing a book that's like based in, incredibly, like the whole thing is based in fear. And that wasn't what the book was for me as well. You know, for every book, I hope that it kind of moves beyond to a different place. And for me, it really, at the heart of it was really love, you know, a love for a child, which is why we want to, um, we want to secure their safety want to secure that they're going to make it to that point that, you know, beyond us. And so I let that, I think in answer to your original question, I let that energy carry me. Mm. And eventually I did let go of like the fear of writing about this experience. Eventually I had to let go of it. I mean, if we're, any of us know who writes, like if we're consumed by fear, there's no creativity that happens. It suppresses the creativity. So then there was a lot of emotional work that needed to happen. There was a lot of time while, you know, I was nursing, I was taking them to school. Then afterwards sitting long, long periods of time, just staring out into space saying, I can do this. I can definitely do this. And then each time I wrote another poem, I wrote another poem, I started to feel that maybe this could actually be a book. Mm. I can't stop thinking about something um, while you're talking about your son and the process of like the fear, but also allowing yourself to not let that fear stop you from, Mm -hmm. from writing. Um, You include in your bio um, on your website and other places, this, fact about you that um, uh, you moved to New York when you were a year old and not long after that you and your brother were sent to live in Taiwan um, for two years because your father had had died suddenly Mm -hmm. and there's a way in which seeing that in your bio and the specificity of that um, feels almost a little bit like a pronoun like Mm -hmm. sharing your pronoun with someone Mm or um it feels like there must be a, a, can, can you talk about the reason why that is an important thing for you to have in your bio? And then of course I'm interested in, you know, the book is so much about, um, recognition of who someone is, Mm -hmm. um, the imagined and real fears. Um, you just said, um, you don't want to think about the thing that's, you know, that's most precious to you that's taken away. And you had this separation from Mm -hmm. your mother and from the country that you were living in. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things to me seem very connected, um, even though the circumstances are completely different, but I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's somewhere in my bio because it really just, I mean, oftentimes when we look at a bio, the bio is sort of very, 
you know, this person received this award, they graduated from this school. And I oftentimes really wish I really, really learned something about that person through their chosen bio. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, if I'm going to play something on my website, what can readers learn about me that they can't find every anywhere, you know, in terms of, oh, my education, whatnot. Um, and I thought the most, the most important, impactful piece of my history was losing my father. Mm-hmm. It, I don't even have a recollection of him. And yet his presence or his absence continues to affect my imaginary and my real life. So during that time, uh, he was he was a professor, and we had actually an impacted move moving to New York, where was where my literary life is mm-hmm. too. We came to New York. We were moved here from Canada, where he was a professor and a researcher, and we came here because there was the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center mm-hmm. here in New York City, which is why I ended up here because wow. he needed to go there. But then two weeks after arriving here and being treated and doing tests, he died mm-hmm. after two weeks. So then. After he passed away, my mother thought, I can't make it here by myself. She was just so surprised. She mm-hmm. had no way of making a living. She just thought, okay, we're going to stay here for a little while. We're going to take care of him. So then she did what she thought was best, and she sent us away. So you're right. I mean, really, within those two weeks, I really lost a mother. I lost a father. I lost my country. I lost my language. So it was kind of everything, just the rug was taken out from underneath me. And as a young person, I just delved into this completely new experience, which in the end was not a negative experience at all. Mm-hmm. It was a very positive experience because that's really when I started my love of language. Mm. Having my language that I knew taken away from me and delving fully into the Chinese language really helped me to experience and understand the nuances of what it is that I was trying to, even as a young person, create. How am I going to find the words for what it is that I want to say? Like, what is the feeling that I have and how do I express it outside of my body? I mean, these were all things that even from a very young age were so fascinating to me. And I think that's why I included it in my bio. Fast forward, you know, I'm 40 years old and I didn't ever think that I could become pregnant I never had the experience before I was 40. So I just, at the age of 40, I just started to give up. Mm. I thought maybe this is an experience that is not going to be given to me in this lifetime. And maybe I'll find another way of being a mother. And then suddenly I was pregnant with this young boy. And... I felt like there was a reckoning of so many different things. That's what happens for every mother. Your past, your present, your future just all starts to collide. And then and then coming to terms with his race and what it really meant for us to think about and I included somewhere in the book like what is it that I want to teach him and what language is he going to speak? By the way, he only speaks English. He doesn't speak Chinese and he doesn't speak French or Creole or anything. Um, but these things were, that were still very much on my mind. Well, I, you know, I think about this a lot. And, I, and in, Nick Flynn was the second person I ever talked to for Commonplace. And, and we were talking a lot um, about the way in which you 
you know, you revisit your childhood traumas in certain ways when mm. you are a parent or you relive, even if they're not traumas. Um, you know, I feel for myself that um, a lot of the ways in which I, a lot of the things about myself that I feel positively about, my independence and um, my resourcefulness uh, and my ambition, these things are also related to ways in which I wasn't parented perhaps in ideal ways and ways in which I have not parented. And it's interesting to see how those like feelings come back at the stages in my kids' lives where I felt I wasn't protected or I wasn't um, kind of consistently, there was no sort of like consistent feeling that there was somebody there who could, you know, be relied on or, you know, moments of separation that were, that were, you know, really difficult or possibly traumatic, which then maybe made me into a stronger person. But, mm-hmm. um, and I, and I think about the ways in which, you know, I have worked to not do that, um, with my kids. Sometimes I've been able to, sometimes I haven't been able to. Um, but I just was thinking about that a lot. Um, when I was reading your book and thinking about, there are so many, um, particularly around issues of race, of course, Um, But there are these different examples of children who are put in harm's way Mm -hmm. um, or who are murdered or who are um, kidnapped. Um, But it's the the mothers in this book. Uh, it's never their fault, mm-hmm. of course. You know they're they're working, they're they're doing the best that they can. You know, they're trying to protect their kids. They're trying to to help their kids have independence. They're trying to you know, um, and so I was just thinking about that, thinking about um, these other kinds of losses or separations, and you know, of course, thinking a lot about um, this political moment in which the country in which we are both citizens uh, is doing these horrifically egregious things Mm -hmm. in separating families and not protecting children um, and um, racial violence that is, uh, you know, that no mother can protect their child from. Um, So I don't know. I was just really thinking about all of those things. And then I think for me particularly, I have a very... Uh, personal relationship both with Taiwan and with Haiti. Oh, wow. Um, what is that? I think everyone listening would want to know. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> well, it, with Taiwan, it's really interesting because my mother uh, died in Taiwan oh. and I went to Taiwan in March for the first time. Oh, wow. And um, um, But when I went to Taiwan, this was like a pretty frequent story um, amongst the people that I met of families who... Uh, really wanted to make sure to come to the United States for citizenship um, or for their kids or, you know, different circumstances, political circumstances, financial, social circumstances caused a separation um, between parents and children or parents and grandparents mm-hmm. and um, and across many, you know, the United States and Taiwan, but also sometimes China. Um, uh, so the, it, it was a theme of this trip and of sort of my experience in Taiwan. And then of course, just the, 
strange circumstance of my mother dying very suddenly in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And so then what was my connection to, mm-hmm. to this place, you know, mm-hmm. which has, I have no historical, right. um, you know, uh, connection to. And Haiti, uh, my mother, who was a storyteller, you know, fell in love with Haiti mm-hmm. and with Haitian folktales mm-hmm. and with Creole. She spoke perfect French wow. and then was 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 very fluent um, in Creole. And she took me to Haiti when I was about a year and a half old. And um, a court, the story, as I've heard it, um, is that she just loved it there so much. And she said to my father, I don't want to go home. And my father said, well, that's fine. You stay here and I'll take Rachel home. And so she stayed. And it's a complicated story because the feminist in me is like, yeah, you go, mom, you stay, you know, Mm -hmm. you do your work, you be, you know, who you are. Um, And once I had an 18 month old, I started to think about what that would feel like for me and for my child if I just, mm-hmm. you know, I trust my husband very much. He's a very mm-hmm. capable father. Mm-hmm. But the separations that I have had, you know, with my children um, have been difficult. Right. Um, and and my mother traveled, you know, that was the first, I think, really big one. But she traveled my whole life, you know, very very frequently, often to Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really raised um, with all of these stories and a lot, a lot, a lot of Haitian folktales, which are very scary, right. many of them. Right. Um, and uh, and I, I, so that's, it's an interesting part of my life, um, my memories of Haiti, my memories of sort of my mother being away um, and being in, in New York and having my mother in this place that I could sort of imagine but couldn't quite recall mm-hmm. my feelings about that, my feelings about like whether I have a right to the sort of Haitian stories that are like deep inside me, whether my mother had a right as a white woman to go mm-hmm. and and collect these stories and publish them mm-hmm. Um and, uh, you know, it's a very, it's just like a really interestingly yeah, complicated so many, tangle. When she was there the first time, how long did she stay away? I don't, I think it was a few weeks, mm-hmm. um, which on the one hand, like before I had children, I was like, oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. And then after I had children, I was like, that's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're informed by all of these childhood memories that we have. And, you know, so much of what you said, like just stirred so many emotions in mm-hmm. me because I, it made me realize what you said that when I was away for two years, yeah, I felt really abandoned, yeah. even though I had wonderful, because the wonderful thing about Asian, Asian um, countries, Asian communities is that, you know, really your relatives are your family. There's no such thing as extended family. Like your family is your family. So my mom had 100% trust in her brothers and sisters to take care of me, which they did. They took care of me like I was their own daughter. So I was well taken care of, but I still couldn't help feel abandoned. And I didn't process that as a child. I processed that as an adult, like, oh, that was very hard for me, actually, which now impacts my parenting where 
I try to be around a little too much where I'm always looking them straight in the eye. I'm always recognizing who they are, just saying, you're really hurt. I hope you know. And even though I do travel around a lot, I mean, I try very, very hard. It's not always that easy. I try very hard not to be away more than two or three days. Could you imagine being away from your kids for two years? Yeah, No, <laughs> I can't even. I think it would be incredibly painful and lots of people for many different reasons. So, and some just so important, valid, have to be away from their children. And hers, she felt like it was too, right? I mean, it was really a matter of life and death. She had no way of supporting us. And she said, how do I do this? And I guess I was, you know, processing it as an adult who has logic. Yes, I'm just so grateful that she had a support system to rely on because what if she didn't? It would have been very hard for her to find things like childcare, people to take care of her children while she's off at work. She would have had to give a large part of her income to make sure that her children were cared for. So, of course, in my logical mind, it all makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. and I'm really grateful, but it has changed my parenting now. So everything that happens to us in the past, it changes who we are. They don't know if I would have written a book like this, if, if motherhood would have impacted me to this degree where I had to be so present for my children be so deeply observing mm-hmm. of what it is that they're going through. They, they, it's For example, like, you know, Mira and I were talking about the fact that sometimes um, her book could be mistaken as a, as a children's book or a young person's book. Yep. It's hard to mistake this book for a children's book because there are very sort of mature things happening in the book. And I talked to her about the fact that my son has definitely come to some of these readings. Mm. And still some of the ideas are still a little bit over his head. He hears me and he hears the poems. He'll even recount certain lines and he'll just repeat them back to me of lines that were interesting to him. And still a lot of it he's processing. And the pains that you were talking about, like the really big pains of um, Naomi Kilay, you know, talking about her existence, talking about the separation of families. The thing is, when we're talking about children, we're talking about like those big fears of being separated from them. And then in the book, like there's little tiny ones too. Like how are they socializing? Yeah. Who are their friends? Like there's so many different things to obsess over, think about that contribute to our sense of feeling that they're all right in the world. And then too, and the the book focuses on this, how do we let go? Mm Mm-hmm. There's no instruction manual. I mean, I say this all the time to my husband. Like, there's no, there's nobody giving me instructions mm-hmm. about how to raise my child and or my children. And then when I feel like I have it figured out, and we're kind of have a good few months where everything seems like it's going pretty smoothly, something else will come up that's pretty pivotal in their development that I feel like I have no clue. So even in those like kind of little aspects of how do we protect? I mean, I, next year he's going to be going off to middle school and there's a part of him that's really scared to death of like the social impact of what it means to be with kids that are much larger than him, that have much more like street smarts and who know how to get along in big groups. Maybe they've been in big schools before and how should he walk through the world and that the more they move along, and you know this, the more they move along in that life, the more we are truly not with them. Right. And the more, you know, 
I remember when I felt like, okay, well, I have to make sure I keep them safe while we're crossing the street. Mm -hmm. And also I should wash the berries because they have pesticides (laughs) on them. And also, you know, I should make sure that they feel loved and seen and heard and, you know, all of those things, which are huge. Now, lately, I feel like, well, if I really was a good mother, I would dismantle white supremacy and toxic Mm -hmm. masculinity because Uh there's really no way to keep our kids safe. Mm -hmm. And also the environment. (laughs) Like, so like, that's clearly, I mean, if I, if I I should just stop doing all the things I'm doing and just try to stop climate change if I really wanted to keep my kids safe, you know, and obviously, uh, we are as powerful as we are, and we are very powerful. We can't fix all of those things. And Mm -hmm. I think that the, like the cognitive dissonance of, of that, um, that drive to keep the kids safe, you know, um, uh, connected to how powerless uh, we are um, in the small things, in the medium things, in the big things. Um, And then, of course, like you just have to keep doing your best, um, I think is really... Uh, For me, it's very connected to the writing. It's very connected to the forms. It's connected to whether to keep publishing books, whether to keep writing at all, when I know that everything I write and and, and publishing the books is also a form of harm in certain ways. Um, You know, just to think back to what you were saying about how to move through that fear of appropriation, to move through the fear, you know... um, not not doing the thing, you know, not doing some of the things um, that are the very things that you're trying to avoid for mm-hmm. your son, um, and yet to keep going. Like I guess to me, that's um, that's part of the maternal imagination. Mm-hmm. That's part of like the maternal muscle of just knowing that um, it's all a failure, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you you still try in every way because it, it these are life and death um kinds of choices in a way mm-hmm. but if you see them always as life and death choice di- death choices you can't even get up in the mm-hmm. morning and you have to get up in the morning and that that kind of um that kind of struggle i guess i f- i feel um you know, if we thought about all these fears, we wouldn't be getting up in the morning. That's the thing about having children, no matter what, you have to get up in the morning. There's no, there's absolutely no option. So I could be, I don't know, down in the dumps about what it is that I just wrote the day before, something that happened to me creatively that to me just seems like just the whole world is shifting and then I'll get up in the morning and the the children just really need me physically to make their lunch, (laughs) to make their breakfast and to get them dressed and to get them out the door. And thank goodness for that. Because I think uh, if were it not for that, I really would probably be lying in bed thinking about like, oh, what did I just make yesterday that wasn't really up to speed? Like it wasn't what I wanted it to be. And I would be sitting in bed really thinking that, but because their needs right now trump mine and forever will you know, I'm thinking outside of myself. So it's a really beautiful reality check, mm-hmm. you know, like really, is is this that important? There, we, we, we hear ourselves speaking to them and teaching them the lessons that either we had or we wish 
that we had. And so in that way, the parenting experience is so self-reflective. Mm. You know, I don't know if in the end, I'm only speaking for myself, I don't know in the end that I'm making be- it better, but I know that um, I'm more present. And I know that even through the creation of this book and writing about this set of experiences that maybe, just maybe, uh, my son and my daughter will read later on. They will see some very deep and serious reflection about who I imagined, not necessarily they are, but what I imagined at the space in time, this place in our history, what was happening around them to inform my view of them as a mother. So through all the fear and the very natural anxieties that writers go through as they're making their work, all natural, every writer goes through them, I think the thing that got me through it is that I love these two young people more than I love myself. Can I have that feeling lead me in the writing of my work? And I think that made me less fearful Mm. to put out whatever message I wanted to put out. Um, I, I kept convincing myself at the, uh, you know, at the end of the writing day, this is what, this is why I did it. You know, there's a part of this personal expression. There's a part of language of mixed race families that really is just at the beginning of being told. You know, mm. if we think of the the case of the lovings, you know, interracial marriage within the history of the U.S. is still relatively new. Mm-hmm. So if you, we can think of when that was decided that it is okay and it is legal for interracial couples to marry, fast forward, you know, till this time, it's like 50, 60 years. It's not very long within the scope of our American history. Now, if you go to Haiti, we're talking about Haiti, you know, my husband will say, well, I'm sorry, but mixed race has been a part of our (laughs) history since, you know, the very beginning, you know, we're thinking when about slavery, mixed race. And so it's not that it wasn't happening before. It's just that since the legalization We are still, I think, even now, as we speak, trying to develop the nuance of language of what it means to live life in a loving family while dealing with all the craziness, insecurities, history that we still have to reckon with. And we reckon with it at the table, at dinner, in the household. There's not a day that goes by that we don't talk about race and the mm-hmm. ramifications of what's happening outside of our door. And I, you know, we were talking about it so much that I just had to move it like into my art because I said, this is the, it, I don't want it to just stay here. I want it to, to move like beyond me, all the things that we're talking about as a family. Mm. Okay. Well, Tina, look, we're going to have to have <laughs> like five more conversations. We didn't talk about your anthology. Oh gosh. We didn't okay. talk about uh, being poet laureate of Brooklyn. Okay. We didn't talk <laughs> enough about Meet the Author. We okay. didn't talk about any of these things, but we have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh. I really appreciate it. It was really lovely. I really think that we could have talked for a long time. There's so many You've been listening to episode 77 of Commonplace with poet Tina Chang. This episode was produced by me, Katie Fernelius, Doreen Wang, and Christine LaRusso. 
Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. The music you're listening to was written by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin and performed by Judah on keyboard, drums, and melodica. Many thanks to W.W. Norton, Knopf, and Wesleyan University Press for books for this episode, and to all the presses who send us books. Thank you to Omaine Gruich and Justin Todd Smith for transcribing this and other episodes. Thank you to our patrons, you make Commonplace possible, and to everyone who supports Commonplace through encouraging emails, letters, tweets, and IG posts, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening.